chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he said some more, sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go into the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited, but few are chosen. I love to watch football. Does anyone else here like watching football? A few of us? Yeah, yeah, we like watching football. I mostly watch on TV, but I have been to a few games at Gillette, and uh, some of those experiences were awesome. Others of them, less so. Uh, weather is a big factor. It has to be a really good game to be worth sitting out in single-digit weather. I remember doing that before with uh, Steve and Noah. We went to see a game in January. When it's that cold, it can be pretty brutal. Um, but more important, I'd say, than even the weather is where your sea is located. Nosebleed seats plus freezing weather is pretty miserable. Club seats and 60 degrees is quite fine. Sometimes at a game you'll see unoccupied seats in the lower sections and it's tempting to consider sneaking your way into them. Now of course the stadium management knows that this temptation exists and so it's not unusual for them to have staff uh, checking tickets in those nice sections. If you don't belong there, you're booted out. Generally speaking, fair is fair. If you really wanted those seats, you could have ponied up the money, but you didn't. Same applies for those who didn't buy a ticket at all and tried to sneak in. They had their chance to get in the right way. Nosebleed seats get you nosebleed. Nosebleed money gets you nosebleed seats. Pay nothing and you get nothing. So this is the third week in a row that we're looking at a parable. I remind you that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus uses parables to tell us something about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is on his third parable, and, and Jesus is on a roll with telling these stories. 
Remember that he's in the temple courts, and the Jewish leaders have questioned him on his authority. And he has turned the tables on them. He's thoroughly rebuking them through this form of parable. The first parable um, pictured two sons, one who ultimately obeys and the other who ultimately disobeys his father. The second gave us the image of a landowner who built a vineyard only to have his tenant farmers go rogue on him. They killed his servants and even killed his son. As Jesus continues to speak, the accumulating message is that these leaders are at odds with God's kingdom. Jesus is demonstrating that he is bringing God's promises to fulfillment. But they're just putting their fingers in their ears. So looking at first verses 1 through 7, Jesus offers this third parable, and again he starts off by saying, giving this the frame of that this is telling his audience something about the kingdom of God. And as we go through these verses, through the entire parable actually, not just verses 1 through 7, there's three basic things that are communicated. One is the reality that these leaders' hearts are possessed by other concerns. Two, that there's going to be consequences for that. And then three, lastly, is what does it actually mean to belong to God's kingdom? What is expected? Um, now, it's interesting because in the Gospel of Luke, this parable also appears. Um, but in Matthew's account, we've got the parable including some extra details, which kind of suggests to us that this is kind of a story that Jesus liked to use a lot um, to try to drive across a point. And so it's probably one that he told several times over. Um, that, and he would just tweak the details each time to communicate perhaps a slightly different point. So the frame of the story is you've got this king whose son is going to be married, and he's going to be throwing a feast, a banquet for his son. And so, like with any wedding, he sends out invitations. And because he, he's a king, um, he has a lot of invitations to send, and he sends it to the citizens of his kingdom. Um, you can expect that it's going to be a very large social affair. Maybe something on the level of, I'm not sure if you've ever seen what an Indian wedding looks like, um, but they'll have something in the order of like 500 guests come, sometimes even up to 1,000 guests come. If you're a king, you can probably expect to have a pretty big party along, uh, along those measures. Um, now, when the king sends an invitation to somebody, He's expecting them to come. Um, one, because they're his subjects, but two, this is a great honor to be invited to the son's wedding. Now, just as much as it's an honor to be invited, it'd be quite an act of dishonor, of disrespect, to not receive this invitation gladly. You'd have to have a really good uh, reason not to go. Well, the king sends out his initial invitation to um, these subjects. Kind of, you think about like, your RSVP, hey, let us know you're coming so we can know how much food we have to prepare, etc. 
And when they send out that invitation, they, the, his subjects ignore it. But this king so badly wants these subjects to be present at the wedding, he even sends his servants out on the day of to try to get them to come. Now, this, this kind of tells us something about the heart of God, if we understand that the king is representing God, is that he so desires us to be part of his kingdom that he'll come after us again and again and again. Well, this king sends his servants to these subjects to try to get and convince them to come, but they come up with excuses. They say, oh, I've got to deal with my field or, or my business. Um, and the basic point is, is that they care more about their own priorities than coming to celebrate with the king. And some of these servants were just simply ignored by those who were invited, but others of those who were invited were such rotten subjects that they actually uh, beat up these servants and even killed them. Um, and this should kind of seem familiar to you because the, the previous uh, parable that we covered on the landowner and his vineyard has the same sort of thing go on. He sends his servants to his tenant farmers to say, hey, I, I want to collect my part of the harvest, and uh, they killed the servants. The only difference here is um, that in this parable you do not have the son being sent. Um, now, there's nothing really significant in that, as in the fact that the son isn't sent. It's just that that's just not the detail that's being included here. But obviously, it still holds true that God has sent his, his son for our salvation. Well, because of the way that these subjects treated these servants, it's not just the fact that they didn't want to come to the wedding. It's the fact that they were so rotten that they, they killed these servants the king comes and brings vengeance upon them. He, he raises his army, sends it out, and burns their city down. And I think what this really kind of serves as, it, what this really serves as is, is a warning to Jesus' audience, particularly to these, these leaders that he's speaking to directly, about how important it is that they respond in the way that they ought to to this invitation into God's kingdom through Christ. Now, last week we talked about how they had mistreated the prophets whom God had sent previously and how they had been killed and persecuted. And we know that this is what's going to happen to Jesus as well, that he's going to be crucified. And so before that happens, Jesus is giving them a, a warning. And this is the kind of warning that is repeated to us even after Christ's death and resurrection in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. You've got that verse up there. Yeah. It says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? if we ignore such a great salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and my gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
So we have every reason to believe this message of salvation in Christ, that he actually existed, that he actually died, that he actually rose from the dead. So what's going to happen to us if we ignore such a great salvation? If, in the terms of this parable, if we don't accept this invitation to the banquet? Well, we, we see that in the case of these subjects that refuse to come and mistreat the servants, it results in their destruction. And we find out more about what it means to not properly receive the Son as we go along in this parable. Now, the high priests and elders are ignoring the salvation, this great salvation standing right before them. Um, they're rejecting the king's banquet because they want to go make mud pies in their fields. But their pride cannot stop God's plan. So we see the same uh, for this king. He's throwing this banquet for his son, and whether or not, whether or not they come, the party's going to go on. He's just going to get some new guests. Um, so we go to verses 8 through um, 14. And we see in verse 8 that he says to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited do not deserve to come. It's kind of interesting how things shifted. Um, The king, after the fact that these subjects refused to come, renders judgment upon them and saying, now the fact is they didn't deserve to come. And so as a result, he offers his invitation to... Anyone and everyone. He sends his servants out into the streets um, to just grab people off the street corners. Uh, Now, this is pretty radical. I mean, imagine if you're having a real posh wedding, like in Newport, and the guest guest list was kind of coming up short, and uh, the head of the, the wedding planner is like, you know what, we need to fill out this guest list. Go to, um, kind of go to just some random town in, in Rhode Island, maybe where it's kind of the people aren't doing so well, and you know, grab a couple homeless people off the street. You know, just grab whoever you find. We'll bring them to Newport, and it'll, it'll be a great party. That'd be a little weird, right? But that's what this king does. He's not discriminatory. He just says, go and, go and bring whoever you find to this banquet. Now, this is a little bit reminiscent of something that we've already heard in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, he says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in, in the frame of this like, mini parable that Jesus gives about the fish, you know, when you cast the net and you, you get the good fish and the bad fish. And, then, and this is the nature of God's invitation to God's, to God's kingdom. He's inviting the good along with the bad, and he's not trying to sort it out up front. 
This will be sorted out in the end. So given this fact, given that the king is just inviting anyone and everyone, it's not a surprise that, um, that he should eventually find someone who doesn't belong there, who shouldn't be there. Now, the reason why this person doesn't belong there is because he's not wearing the correct wedding clothes. The king goes out to the party, he sees this man, he's not properly attired. Now, perhaps the king expected him to come dressed in his own robes, but if you're just grabbing anyone off the street, you could hardly expect that they would have a nice suit at home. And so we could expect that the king would be giving out proper robes for the people to wear so that they're dressed nicely for his party. He wanted everyone to be there, but he still wants it to be nice for his son. Um, but the fact that this guy got into the party, but he wasn't dressed properly, and basically just it seemed that he was indicating that he was just there for the food. He didn't care about the son. Um, and so the king comes to the guy and he says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. And the, the fact that the man was speechless means that he didn't have any real excuse. He had nothing to say for himself. Um, and it's kind of interesting, this, the way in which the king addresses the man by calling him friend, because this is um, a term of reference that we see Jesus apply to Judas later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, in Matthew 26, 50, um, when he's in the garden and Judas comes with the guards and he betrays him, Jesus says to Judas, do what you came for, friend. And the men step forward, sees Jesus, and arrested him. So it's kind of, a, Judas is a prime example of someone who's in the party, but then eventually is revealed to not belong at all. Um, so the, the question, though, that is probably in, in the back of our minds is, well, what does it mean for us to be properly attired? How can someone belong at this wedding banquet? How can someone belong in the kingdom of God? And we get our answer as we um, search through the New Testament, um, and especially as we look in Revelation. And so I wanted to go through a few verses this morning to kind of just um, trace this out. So in Revelation 3, 4, um, this is, it says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So we have this idea of those who are properly dressed in white, that they are someone who is worthy. This idea of being worthy of being at the banquet. But the question is, is how do you get these white robes? How are they made white? You go to Revelation 7, and it's talking about, and this very question is asked. One of the elders asked, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So these saints that John is seeing in his revelation of the end of time are wearing these right robes, 
And the way in which they are made white is by being washed in the blood of the Lamb, by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's Christ who has made them righteous. See, the same sort of idea in Revelation 22.4. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. How do they wash them? They wash them in Christ. But there is something else, though, that is also implied when we're talking about being clothed properly. In Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, um, Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you all are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we gain access to this cleansing in Christ through faith, and we're baptized in Christ. And then this comes with some implications. And Paul draws these implications as he gives instructions Um, to the churches that he's writing to. In Colossians, writing to the Christians in Colossians, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, these are people that have been baptized in Christ, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he goes on and adds other things that they ought to do, that they ought to be clothed in. And when we turn back to Revelation, we see that this is a part of what it means to be properly clothed um, as God's people. In Revelation 19.8, it says, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her. And I've put in brackets there the bride and church, so you understand who the her is referring to there. Um, given her to wear. Now, interestingly, the, the, the parentheses there, that's not something I've added. That's original to the text. And it says, Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. So we have this idea that the robes in which God's people is clothed in only gains its whiteness because of it being washed in the blood of Christ. And yet at the same time, we also see that the sort of clothing that God's people is, are to wear is represented by good works, by righteousness. So how do we bring these things together? Because so often we think about you know, our salvation in Christ, putting faith in Christ as being one thing and good works another, and we understand that we can't earn our way into salvation because we're not perfect. And yet, it seems that both are expected. Well, if we look to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, this is one of my, my favorite uh, scripture passages because it brings all this together so beautifully. It says, for, by, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So you're not doing it. You're not the one who's saving yourself. But then Paul goes on. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what it means to be clothed with the proper robes, to be clothed in that white linen, is to receive the gift of God in Christ, 
by putting our faith in him. But there's an outcome of this. When we put our faith in Christ, good works result because we're no longer the same. We have different clothes on. We're living a new kind of life. And so, if our salvation in Christ through faith, through faith is the cause, the effect, are these works of righteousness. Because now we're starting to look like Jesus more and more and more. So, who does this man represent at the banquet? He represents someone who has not been united with Christ. He remains covered with the guilt for his sin, and he's still living a life dominated by sin. I think it's, both the, it's important to kind of have both of those things together, because some people claim that they have put their faith in Christ. And they said, oh, I prayed a prayer you know, back when I was 14 or whatever, and then they haven't lived at all any differently in their lives. Now it's not, and that should raise a question in our minds, not because they're saved by their works, but because if you truly have put your faith in Christ, you won't stay the same. You're going to be different. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. You could be a Christian your whole life, and at 98, you still won't be perfect. But you'll be different than you were years before. And so, because this fellow has come in, he's not properly robed and you know, in the meaning that we understand here, he hasn't been united by faith in Christ and, um, and had that um, work of transformation occur in his life because he hasn't put that faith in Christ. The result is this. It says in verse 13, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the way that we can best understand this, I think, in the terms of the parable is we can imagine, you know, you imagine this hall that's brightly lit with all the food and stuff. And then outside in the darkness, you could almost imagine some people peeking in. Maybe some of those subjects that had been invited initially and then said, no, we don't want to come, but now they've kind of heard all the... Uh, all the buzz about the party, and, and they're looking in, but they're not welcome anymore because they don't deserve to be there. And so they're looking at the, through in, in at this party, and they're angry. They're upset. They're regretting that they didn't go in, but they're also envious. And when we look across um, Scripture, we see that the gnashing of teeth um, um, indicates this kind of anger. Um, a lot of times when we see gnashing of teeth, we think that it indicates pain. Um, the weeping would represent pain pretty well, but gnashing of teeth is kind of like, like I'm, I'm angry at you. Um, we see in Job 16.9, it talks about God gnashing his teeth. Obviously, God doesn't have teeth, um, but this is speaking um, in human terms to help us understand uh, what God, what God was um, directing uh, towards Job, or at least what jo Job was feeling at that moment about how God was treating him. 
It says in Job 69, God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent passes on me his piercing eyes. You see in Psalm 37, 12, that the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. And then we go to Acts 7, 54, and uh, when Stephen's giving his testimony, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their, their teeth at them. Um, and so this is, this is what we should understand about those who are outside of the kingdom, who on, on that day will be separated and not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Is They're not merely going to be in pain and, and experience regret, but they're going to be really unrepentant. They're going to be gnashing their teeth because they're just angry. They have this bitterness towards God. And then in verse 14, we get kind of a, a very pithy summary. It says, For many invited are invited, but few are chosen. And when Jesus says many, what he's really meaning is all. He's not saying that um, just a, few, a large number are invited, but he's actually indicating that all people are invited. Um, and we kind of see this sense in Matthew 13, 17, when he's talking about prophets and righteous people. He says, For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Now, obviously, what he's meaning to say there is that all the prophets and righteous people were looking forward to seeing Jesus. It's just, it's just a way of, to- of talking at that time, using many, and it's, it means all. Um, and this lines up with what Paul says about God's heart for the lost. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, um, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. God wants to save everybody. He invited, in the terms of this parable, he invited those who were his subjects, some of the leading people in his city, But he's also invited all the people on the street corners. God wants everyone to be saved. But just because God wants everyone to be saved doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. Um, And we've gone over this before. In Matthew 7, Jesus describes this reality in terms of gates. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for why is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So all of us are heading down the road. And the question is, is what gate are we going to go through? The broad gate, the wide gate, or the narrow gate? We all have the opportunity to enter into God's kingdom. A few choose to enter into it. And even those who make appearances of entering into it may at the end of the day be found out to actually have other motives in mind. And that's what the rest of this passage talks about. I won't get into all the details of it, but it talks about false prophets and people saying one thing but doing another. And how at the end of days in verse 21 it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Um, there's lots of people who can say all the right things and who may think that, oh yeah, I've put my faith in Jesus. But on the end, at the end of the day, when they stand before God, it will be revealed that they did not. And now, you and I can't know that. That's, that's something we can't determine. But that's something that God knows. He knows, whether we, where, he knows where our hearts are at, if we've truly put our faith in Christ or not, or if we're just in this for our own gain and our own purposes. Um, point that we should take away from this is this. When Jesus says that many are called but few are chosen, we should understand that all those are chosen who would repent and believe in Christ. Anyone who repents and believes in Christ are among God's chosen. Because God's desire is not that anyone would perish. We see that in 2 Peter 3.9. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Um, and God knows who is going to repent and who is not, and he has worked out all the times and places by which the most people possible will come to have faith in Christ and be saved. We see this in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. And this is a bit complex because we're dealing with the eternal qualities of God, insights that he has that we do not, the power that he has which we do not. But this is what Peter testifies. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, that means God's chosen, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the knowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. From God's infinite knowledge, God created a world in which as many people as possible will be brought to salvation. And this means that there are two things which are true. The first is that if I'm here, if I'm in the banquet, if I am part of God's church, if I have put my faith in Christ, it's only because of the grace that God has poured out upon my life so that my heart would be broken from its stone-heartedness to respond to Christ. I'm only here because of the circumstances I've been blessed with, that I've been surrounded by people of faith in my life. God knew that. God planned that. If I'm not here, if I'm not at the banquet, if I haven't put my faith in Christ, then I only have myself to blame for that. Because God has given the invitation, but I've rejected him. Now, we, we looked at this verse last week, and I just wanted to throw it back up there again, just to remind us of what God, the purpose of God's calling is in calling us a chosen people. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. That's the purpose that He's called us to. And this is the problem with the man that was at the banquet and didn't belong there. Is he, he wasn't there to declare the praises of the one who called them out of darkness. He was just there for himself. Now, when we think about the high priests and elders of the people, they were the ones who were supposed to be the leaders of God's holy nation. They are the ones who got the first invite to the banquet. But they snubbed it. They despised the king and killed his messengers. They rejected Jesus. And in upcoming chapters, Jesus will foretell the disaster which will befall Jerusalem because of this. God is now drawing people from all nations, Jew and John Jew alike, together in Christ to form his holy nation. His servants are sent to the street corners, to the alleys and byways to invite all to come in. But just because all are invited doesn't mean that all belong at the king's table. You need to be properly attired. But when we go to our closets, we find that nothing is good enough. Like the prophet Isaiah, we cry in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. We need to be cleansed. The good news is that Jesus offers this cleansing. He cleans our robes white by the blood of his sacrifice. His life applied to, his, to our own. And as a result, our past sins are wiped away. And in its place is the brilliance of Jesus' own good life. We now live in the reality that the author of Hebrew describes in Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect those who are being made holy. From the standpoint of eternity, we are already perfect in Jesus. From the perspective of this particular space and time in which we are all sitting in, we are being made holy in Jesus. And this explains the reality of some of, of some of our stumbling along the way, even as we grow and following Jesus. You and I are like a person in need of life-saving medicine. Without it, we're going to die from our disease. When we receive it, we are saved, even if it takes some time for our symptoms to disappear. And the symptoms will disappear. When we take Christ, we are saved, and the effects of being joined to him will work itself out over your life. You won't be the same sick person you were. You will get better and better and better over time. When a person has not changed, 
when they are sick as ever, then we know that something is not right. Something is out of place, like finding the man without wedding clothes at the banquet. There's no such thing as taking Jesus and not changing. Some have refused Jesus altogether. Others have claimed Jesus, but really have just written his name over the status quo of their lives. Like writing penicillin on a bag of Skittles. They want their dirty clothes and the banquet. Boundless grace and mercy is offered us in Jesus. We can be completely forgiven, but we must also want to be completely cured. If we don't want that, then there's no place for us at the party. If we don't want that, we only belong from where we came, the darkness. Do this rather. Answer the invitation. Come to the banquet. Be clothed by Christ. And enjoy the salvation which belongs to all who belong to him. Be counted among the chosen. Let's pray. Father, this parable which your Son has told reminds us of just how gracious you are, Father. And that you have always been faithful to your people, sending them invitations again and again and again to come before you, to be with you, to be at your side. And this parable reminds us, Father, that you're so gracious that you've extended this invitation into your kingdom to all people so that all of us might have the chance of a new life, of a resurrection life, in which we will live with you, Father, in a new heavens, in a new earth, with new bodies, Father, and with new lives. Father, we thank you that you've made all this available to us in Christ, that we can be clothed in his righteousness, Father, and that as we are clothed with his righteousness, Father, we are transformed. May that be our desire, Father, to know the forgiveness of Christ and to also know his righteousness. And like those servants, Father, who were sent to invite all kinds of people to the banquet, may we do likewise. Send us to all kinds of people, not worrying about whether they're good or bad, Father, but just inviting them to come to the banquet and partake in the good gifts of salvation that you've offered to us. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. 
I hope you enjoyed the sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.